We have been talking for the last number of weeks about the swift um, ruinous and overall silent decline of churches in our region. When I say our region, we're talking from roughly San Francisco all the way up to the Canadian border, a region of the United States with the highest percentage of unchurched people, and in our particular region, uh, we are um, the seventh highest uh, unchurched region in the nation, ahead of New York City. We are ahead of Portland, Oregon. Um, and so we have this challenge in front of us that in Chico, Redding, 54% of the population is unchurched. But it's a bigger challenge, as we've been talking over the last number of weeks, that on top of that, another 41% of the population in the Chico, Redding area is what is being called de-churched. Used to have a committed pattern, a regular pattern of church attendance, but has dropped out. We are the 11th highest, most de-churched region in the nation. And so if you put together the metropolises of Seattle, Portland, all the way down to San Francisco, we are facing something approaching the disappearance of Christian witness on the west coast of the United States. It is precipitous. It has happened fast. And all the while it happened, we were not paying an ounce of attention to it. So, our situation, as we've been saying over the last number of weeks, is grave. The question in front of us is, will there be Christian witness in California? In 25 years, will it be there? Not at the present rate. Will it be there in 10 years? Not at the present rate. We're facing a European post-Christian situation. And it's not something that we are looking ahead toward. We're not in the position that many other places in the country are of saying, wow, you know, in Europe where they got these large church buildings and only a handful of people meeting in them, where there's only like 3 to 5% of the population that are active believing evangelical Christians. Wow, that situation is headed our way. No, it's not. We're there. We're in it. And that is why you are seeing the things in our culture that you are seeing. So, from this grave situation, we're coming to grips with a very narrow slice of that 41% of our population that has dropped out of church. Used to attend, used to be committed, and now are saying, done. Fed up. Don't need any more of that. We're coming to grips with a slice of those folks who are also, having already made that decision, are feeling a draw to come back. They are feeling the call of the Holy Spirit to say, 
come back to the body of Christ. You need Christ and his body. You need to return to him. I would say there are thousands of people in our region right around us as we sit here this morning. Thousands of people in this category. They are the offended brothers and sisters of Proverbs 18. An offended brother is more unyielding than a strong city. And these are people who need healing and our relationship with them needs healing. So what we are doing uh, this month, um, we're taking four Sundays to train to heal. And the reason is that in September and October, we are going to speak as a church directly to uh, these folks who have dropped out of church, saying, had it, done. I'm tired of trying to make this work. I'm going to live spiritually on my own. And so we're, we're going to speak in a very direct way uh, to this slice of what are called the de-churched. And we're going to offer what I believe the New Testament offers, disillusioned hope, real hope that is not founded on fantasies, not founded on illusions, not founded on vague ideas, but on the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in his people. We're going to talk about that. So I, I, this, this series is a way of training together to get ready to participate in that ministry with a recognition that we're not ready and we're behind the eight ball. So uh, those are the things we've been talking about. Last week we said uh, from, again, Proverbs 18 that to give an answer before we know the question is a source of shame. And last week we, we said evangelicals have been trying to give the gospel, been trying to evangelize by giving answers without listening, without really engaging with what's on people's hearts and minds, without trying at all to give healing through that gift of listening to someone in their trouble so that we can learn what the issues are that require answers. And we said last week that this listening needs to be generous, free from judgment and evaluation. And it needs to be patient. It needs to be ongoing because we have a lot of learning to do from the people around us. This morning, I want to talk with you about the reason to listen to people, and that is to build a partnership with them. We listen to people in order to stand shoulder to shoulder with them and in partnership with them to see the grace of God do powerful things in their life. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. One of the things we're wrestling with as evangelicals is a kind of one-size-fits-all evangelism. Um, we've got the sales pitch, and I hope you'll pardon my language here. I'm just trying to be as candid as possible. We've got the telemarketer's script, 
And we can give that script, we can run through all of the points, and we can uh, attempt to, to show people the meaning of the scriptures. We can do it well, we can do all of these things, but our answers tend to be one size fits all. If you're in a stadium and you're listening to an evangelist, you know the drill. There's the altar call. How do you get saved? Go forward, pray the prayer with the counselor. Thank you, we have counted you up as a convert today. Isn't that wonderful? And the number is this of people who came to Christ today. Then what? Some of you know the answer to then what. The answer to then what is nothing. No connection with the church, no discipleship, no teaching, no relationship, no patience with the process of change in your life. So the then what can be pretty disillusioning. Um, we invented one-size-fits-all Christianity to make it easy. This is what you do. It's easy to do. It's easy to explain. And so we can give you the standard procedure to become a Christian, and you can do it, and then you're a Christian, and we're done. Simple, right? It's easy. Except that the Christian life is not simple. Well, it is simple in a way after you've gone through the process of walking with the Holy Spirit, that, that becomes simple over time, but it is not simple in the beginning. And there are many things to work through. Um, so, uh, all of these issues um, we have tried to address by making Christianity easy and a one-size-fits-all spirituality. And then we wonder, why isn't evangelism working? I, I asked groups of men uh, about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, when was the last time you saw someone come to Christ? You know what the response was? Tears. And very briefly, it's been a long, long time. Why do we think that is? Because we're trying to make something easy that is actually impossible. Only God can do it. And so we're creating a, a kind of barrenness in our trying to make it easy. And um, so our biggest problem, though, is not the practicality of it. It's the New Testament itself. It's the fact that Jesus was a very bad salesman. He just, he couldn't get it right. He, uh, Jesus was such a poor salesman because he was always approaching individuals. And he was saying something different to each individual. Really good salesman doesn't do it that way. A really good salesman comes up with a very straightforward, simple, memorable little uh, gimmick, uh, something that just appeals to everybody. Everybody wants this 
this thing here, and so I'm going to sell it. I'm going to sell it simply, and I'm going to say the same thing to masses and masses of people, and they will all buy it. But Jesus doesn't do that. It's a poor salesman. And I find myself wondering about that. Why is Jesus such a poor salesman? Why doesn't he make it easy? Why doesn't he give one simple pitch to everybody? Think about Jesus. He's in a room teaching and four guys dig through the ceiling and lower down uh, a paralyzed man. And it's perfectly obvious what they want him to do. It's what everyone wants. Healing. Heal him, Jesus. And Jesus, out of his mouth, gives the wrong answer. Your sins are forgiven. What a poor salesman. He just blew his big opportunity right there. Or think about um, uh, the man born blind at the temple gate in John chapter 9. Jesus goes up to this man, and actually it doesn't really say anything to him at all. He just spits on the ground, makes a bunch of mud, takes the mud, and slathers it all over his eyes. And says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. This is terrible salesmanship. It doesn't make any sense, and it's kind of gross. Why does Jesus do these things? Or think about another man in John chapter 5 where uh, the, Jesus uh, comes to the pool of Bethesda and all over the place there are the lame and the sick and they are waiting for an angel to come and according to their superstition stir the pool so that they can be healed of their diseases. Jesus walks into this situation. He's got all these customers, all of them just laid out right in front, right in front of him. He could give a mass pitch just right there. Do you want healing? Instead, he goes up to one guy and asks what may be one of the stupidest questions in the New Testament. Do you want to be healed? Why? Why does Jesus ask this way? Well, I want to turn this around for us today. What if Jesus did not have the goal of selling someone a product? What if, I just think with me here, work with me now, what if Jesus was not trying to be a salesman? What if he was trying to build partnerships with individual people? What if that's what he was doing? Well, if that's what he was doing, he was very effective at it. And that would explain why he dealt with individual people uniquely according to who they are and their situation and what they needed in that moment. See where I'm headed with this? We need to stop being salesmen. We need to stop trying to make our points and work through our script. We need to throw away the script, open our ears, and focus on building partnerships with the people around us. To 
find life in Jesus Christ. I've asked you to open to Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 5. Let's look at that verse. Is there wisdom from God about the problem that we face? Yes, there is. Do we have access to that wisdom? Yes, we do. It's right here in this verse. Proverbs 20 and verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. But a man of understanding will draw it out. Strange proverb. This may be, if you've been in the habit of reading Proverbs and going through it, you, this may be the proverb that you stopped and looked at it and said, thank you, but I don't know what that means. And so I'm moving on today to something that I can use in my daily life. Uh, I would put it to you that this is a, a proverb about partnership in relationship. Let's look at it closely. The purpose in a man's heart. What is that? That's our real intentions. What are we really about? What are we really looking for? What do we really want? What are we striving for? Dreams, fantasies, shame. Where is all of that? Is that just on our sleeve for everybody to see? No, it's not. It's deep down. It's in the deep water. It's in the place that you can't get without very special gear. And why do we do that? Because putting our deepest things is not safe out there for everyone to see. This is especially true of shame. We don't want our shame to be out in front of other people so that they can see it and exploit it. Because that's what we're afraid is going to happen. And so we bury that. What about your dreams, though? Surely, surely your deepest yearnings, desires, goals, and dreams, surely people will be safe with those. No, no, they won't. We take our deepest things, the most closely held things, and we, we keep them preserved and safe down in the deep water. And what this is saying is the purpose of a man's heart is like deep water. There's the surface that you can see, but then there's all sorts of stuff down there that you can't see, that you wonder about. And how, uh, the question is, how might you gain access to the deeper things of someone's life that's the question in this proverb. You ever been to Crater Lake? I haven't been there in a long time. was there when, when I was a kid. And um, uh, Crater Lake kind of freaked me out, actually, because they, they tell you how deep the thing is. And I, I can't remember what that is. All I remember is it, it's really, really deep, that lake. So you're, you're high up on the ridge and you're, you're looking down into this lake wondering, well, how deep is deep? And 
What, what happens if you, you go down there? How far down could you go? Uh, how dark is it down there? What would, would you find any living things down there? Uh, what, what is in those depths? And I had this kind of waking nightmare when I visited Crater Lake of uh, kind of falling off the ridge and kind of rolling down those steep slopes into the lake and having to swim to the shore with this feeling of like the abyss opening up underneath me, but my not being able to see anything coming up at me to, to eat me. So, sometimes talking to people is like that. There's stuff going on down there, and I don't know what it is. And I feel like at any moment, something could just swim up from the depths and eat me alive, and I would never know what hit me. Ever feel like that? This proverb is, is saying the purpose in a person's heart is that way. It's buried deep down. Now, think about the kinds of folks we described a couple of weeks ago when we did a profile of what we're calling de-churched people. And I said, um, they're very focused. They have a keen sense of right and wrong, and they're courageous. Their keen sense of right and wrong has been betrayed at some point in their history with churches, church leaders, Christians. Somewhere there is a betrayal of what they understood to be right. Now, you can argue with that, you can quarrel with that, and say, oh, no, no, you're mistaken, you misunderstood what happened to you. But the fact is, that's, that's the nature of the offense. And so we outline some of those things. We're talking about abuses, like financial fraud, like sexual misconduct. How about guilt manipulation? All of these kinds of things, they're out there and they have affected people silently in our, in our attempt to machine mass produce new Christians. We have in fact emptied the chairs of the Christians we had and uh, so, they have deep purposes. They are focused on this problem. And remember the problem I said they're focused on? Is God actually as mean as the church portrayed to me? As my family portrayed to me? Is He actually that bad? Or is the real God generous, gracious, compassionate? That's the question they are focused on, like a laser. They're courageous because when they come to church, that deep purpose is buried down in the deepest water of their heart. And when they, they come back, and I'm getting this from many of you who have had this experience, you come back hoping that you won't get destroyed. So, um, the purpose of a person's heart when they come to church 
let me just say it categorically, you're not going to know it and you don't have access to it. That has to be earned. So that brings us to the second part of uh, verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Notice this. There's understanding involved. There's a recognition. This is deep water. There's something down there, and I don't know what it is, but in order to have access to that deep purpose in this person's life, I'm going to have to use wisdom and understanding, compassion, sympathy, empathy. Uh, I'm going to have to communicate well. I'm going to have to draw out that purpose over time. I'm going to have to earn access to the deep place. A man of understanding, a person of understanding, approaches that deep water with this mindset. This is difficult, and I'm going to have to earn the trust to draw out that purpose. You say, what does this look like? It looks like violin lessons. Um, when I was uh, in college, I went to college uh, uh, at Willamette University because of the violin professor there, and um, when I went there, um, I had basically hit a wall as a player, and um, the wall was, I was too tense. I was just, just bound up, and uh, so in performances, uh, that tension would just destroy uh, uh, my performance, sound production, um, ability to get over mistakes, and I was just locked up. And so my purpose was to perform well. I want to play these pieces. I want to play. I want this music to get out there so that people will hear it. I don't want to go up there and choke again. So I went to Willamette because the violin professor there, Dan Rouselin, had a particular way of approaching violin playing that loosened the player up and got the player to relax and, and make, uh, make sound not by straining, but by using the instrument in, in the right kind of way and all of these kinds of things. So I had that purpose in my heart. I really wanted to achieve that. And then Dan Rouselin had his method. Now that method, he could have come at me and say, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. Let me tell you what this should be like. Do it this way. Do it this way. You know, you're, this posture is wrong, and the, the way you're moving this is wrong. And, you know, you could come at it that way. You could come at it the way evangelicals evangelize. You're wrong. You're wrong. Oh, by the way, did I tell you you're wrong? <laughs> you're wrong about this. You're wrong about that. Now, let me argue with you about this point, because you're wrong there. And let me just make sure that you understood. Uh, you're, not, you're not just wrong about that. You're, you're just comprehensively wrong. Okay, so how effective was that going to be in violin lessons? 
if I'm locked up and tense, it's not going to work. It's going to make me more tense because that's just more fear, right? So the way this man of understanding drew out the purpose of my heart was by forming a partnership with me. And he showed me some ways to trick myself out of getting tense and some different ways to play and he affirmed what was right. It was basically by positive affirmation. Boy, that really worked. Let's try that again. Let's try that approach over here. Not only changed my playing, it changed the way I approached life. And from this man who was not a believer, I learned a lot about the way to approach spirituality with Christ. And so, um, what does it look like to draw out the, per the, the deep things of a person's heart? It looks like cooperating with them. It looks like building a partnership with them, saying, okay, there's this problem out here, and we're going to work shoulder to shoulder on this problem. You are not the problem. You're working on the problem, and I'm working on it with you. What would happen if we approached evangelism that way instead of, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong? Let's uh, go into this a little bit more deeply. Let's talk about the slow work of building a partnership. Um, three things that I have found about building partnerships with people. I'm just going to pause and look to see if we've got any questions here. I don't see any. Um, so, three things that I have found that build partnerships, first of all. You have to come to a shared understanding of what the problem is. You know why you listen to people? So that you can arrive at that common understanding. Oh, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking, you know, you mean, we're actually not talking about relativism in modern America? You mean, we're actually not talking about postmodernism at all. We're talking about the fact that you were abused as a six-year-old. Oh, I get it. So let's talk about that. And let's talk about the problem of working out how to live life with Jesus Christ with that as an issue in your life. See, that's a problem that you can work on shoulder to shoulder with someone. Um, but we have to listen first. The common understanding of the problem means that you are, um, you are spending your time with people, listening to how they describe themselves, what they talk about, the experiences they've had, and you ask them, do I actually understand what you're telling me? Or am I just kind of projecting my biases onto your experiences. Um, as I said last week, 
this is one of the central keys to my ministry. If you like the sermons, it's because I love listening to people and trying to understand where they're coming from. And it changes me because it changes what I understand the problems of life to be. And so it changes what I talk about from the pulpit. It changes how I use the scriptures in the pulpit. Let me give you an example that I am uh, using with permission. A um, few of us have been meeting with uh, a man in, here in our church for, for um, many, many months, uh, probably a better part of a year and a half. And um, it was just evidence, uh, this guy had just hit a wall, but he wanted to come back and, and engage with life in the church, engage with believers, and understand who God is. And so we as a team just listened, 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 conversed, dialogued, listened. And the more we listened, the more it became evident that this man had been brought up with an idol at the center of his home. And his parents had set up this idol of a God who was wrathful and on a hair trigger, just like dad. And so dad is liable to blow at any moment and be physically violent. He is constantly emotionally violent. And so the God that is portrayed in the family with the way they talk about God and the way they, they guilt manipulate children using God, the family is actually setting up a false God who dominates the consciences and emotional lives of their children with hair trigger wrath. And then, here's where it gets really, really upsetting. The church seconds that idol and says, yep, that's our God. It's wrathful and he's on a hair trigger. That is not the wrath of God. Question, biblically, from what you know of the scriptures, is God's wrath on a hair trigger? Not at all. We wouldn't be alive if God were as capricious as we are. So you've, you've got an idol in this man's background. It goes back to his earliest memories. And uh, things that were really just shrouded in, in shame and things that he really didn't want to talk about and that we had to earn the right to hear. Here's what he says. I thought it was bad to have a good job, fun life, and be happy. I thought God wanted us to suffer. And I personally thought God wanted me to die sometimes. Today, I'm mostly positive about that, but still have doubts. But I also feel like God supports me and gives me peace and wisdom. 
I can pray about things I wouldn't dare to before. Letting God know how I really feel is difficult, but I'm getting better at it. It's a huge relief to know God isn't going to condemn me, although I'm still a bit afraid of that. I like honesty, and I think so does God. Even if it's ugly, hurt feelings, I think. I think God likes that. Now, the deep things of this man's heart were down there in, in the dark water. You're not going to get there in one conversation. You're not going to understand that in, in a couple of sessions. You have to listen and listen and listen. And you, you have to continually draw out what more is there? And you say, Pastor, that just sounds like a bunch of uh, psychotherapy. It just sounds like a, a lot of talk, no action. Really? I think it sounds like friendship. I think it sounds like love. And if you get access to those things, you see the change there? Now, I can pray to God. I can tell Him what I'm actually feeling. I can let the ugly out, and I can show it to Him, and I know that He doesn't condemn me, or at least I think He won't. I'm learning. I'm getting better at this. You realize what a massive change that is? That's a change from death to life. That's a change from condemnation to no condemnation. We left Romans 7. Well, we weren't even in Romans 7 before. We, we were deep in idolatry. We left that idolatry and landed in Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you, you make that transition by forming a partnership with a shared understanding of the problem. And it, eventually it hit me as we talked, you were raised with an idol. And so in, in understanding and coming to a shared understanding of the problem, we began to experiment. Well, how can you strip that idol away? How can you tear it down? How can you uh, see yourself freed from its wrathful, capricious, abusive clutches? How do you do that? Well, we would go to this part of Scripture, and we would go to that part of Scripture, and, and various men were, were working uh, along the same lines together, all saying the same thing. These Scriptures are not saying what you were taught they are saying. These Scriptures are telling you the truth about who God is and how much He loves you and how He is giving you life. And so we would experiment together. And each week I would say, well, let's try this. And I'm going to be praying about this. And uh, our other guys are going to be praying about this. And let's see how this goes. But there are no easy answers here. There are no gimmicks, nothing. There's no button you can push. This is not easy. This is not simple. 
this is what you have experienced. So together, let's try this. We'll experiment. Then, as we did that, we found ourselves having a shared experience of the power of God. When you reach these conversations where suddenly a man who was talking about God as if he were that old idol, that family idol, suddenly starts saying, God is good. God loves me. I saw that. Uh, suddenly the light shined through and I felt like I was let out of prison. And these kinds of things start becoming part of the conversation. That's what a partnership looks like. Listening so that you come to a shared understanding of the problem. Experimenting shoulder to shoulder. Let's try this with the Word of God. Let's try this with prayer. And let's see if, if we don't hear from God on this matter. Because this is not simple. We're with you and we're working together with you. And processing this together. Um, then, after weeks and months of this kind of partnership, we start to see healing. And it's not just healing in the man healing in all of us working on this problem because we see the grace of God working and bringing light into a man's life. There's no replacement for that. That's what a partnership looks like. And the question I want to ask you is, are you willing to put in the time are you willing to open your ears? Are you willing to get your hands dirty in experimentation, godly experimentation with helping people heal? Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to approach a meeting wondering what you can possibly say? Because there's nothing to say. If you're willing to do this, you're taking up the call to be a healer. And what you will be doing, whether it's somebody who has never attended church before and has no background with the scriptures, or whether it's someone who attended and said, I've had enough. If you do this, you will be trained to heal and you will see the Holy Spirit at work in your relationships. You will observe this happening in your life. We will see it in the life of this church. We are already seeing it, and that's why I'm bringing this to you. Because I believe with all my heart that we are uniquely placed as a church to be a place of healing and renewal, and if I can use this old word, revival for the church of God and for the people of God who have said can't do this anymore I'm out but my heart yearns to be back in okay here's a question okay I'm curious 
What do evangelicals do well? Is there positive affirmation we can build on without denying or ignoring our flaws? That's a fair question, given all that I've said. Um, We do well at throwing ourselves into this work. There's passion here. There's been passion among evangelicals for decades in our country to see this nation come to Christ. There's been passion that uh, this region, that this town would come to Christ. So part of what I'm saying is passion's good, tools, not so much. So let's get new tools, and then the passion will see fruit. So the passion is good. Um, I, th- I see boldness to say unpopular things among evangelicals. And I think that's a strength. So what I'm saying here is we need to find the right unpopular things to say. Too often we're saying unpopular things that we think are politically unpopular or uh, unpopular in, um, in some other way, some, uh, culturally just not acceptable. We're, we're very good at kind of getting somebody, getting a rise out of people. We're very good at that. We need to take that willingness to say things that we know are not acceptable and say the right things. Because if we do say the things about the fact that sin is destructive and killing, that sin was why Jesus had to die, these are unacceptable things. The fact that there is no salvation without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he's the only one who ever offered to die for our sins, much less actually did die for our sins. These are all unpopular things. We need to find the right things to say. There are lots of other things that are kind of self-indulgent, uh, in, in the things that we say about politics or whatever it is, culture, entertainment. Um, and so the, the good things are the passion on this issue and a proven boldness to say things that need to be said or that we feel need to be said. Now we need to get the right tools for that passion to be effective and get the right things to say. Uh, in that boldness. How can I help my spouse or husband listen? Well, that is a whole other sermon. Um, I think, actually, this question has come up over the last couple of weeks in different forms. One form that it came up in is, uh, how do I listen Uh, What do I do when I don't feel listened to, when I just feel kind of shouted down? 
And so I'll give the same answer to this that I, I gave in the other instance. We need all of us to develop in our closest relationships the ability to listen. And so the way to get somebody else to start listening is to be a listener and to earn access to those deep, hidden things. In this case, in a husband. Um, there are no deeper waters than husbands. Uh, is, 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 what's, what's wrong? Nothing. Uh, see, this, this, the problem with men um, is um, shame, inadequacy, fear. These are not things that we're going to talk about. So, uh, there, there's a renewal of tenderness if we can talk about those things in a safe way with our wives. And then... In that tenderness, there is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit of God to open the ears of what admittedly is a self-absorbed husband. That's all husbands. We're thinking about our stuff, we're thinking about our problems, our stress, all of these things. Um, that is not an easy answer, um, but it is effective. Also, I would say this is not an answer if the problem is that the husband is, is an abuser and not just a poor listener. We have to go to a different place for that kind of problem. But if we are talking about, um, we got a guy who doesn't listen, uh, then this is an approach for that. And it's an effective one. Um, question, will we see the pastor in the dunk tank at the barbecue? Wow. How, yeah, new approach. How off topic could you possibly be? Um, what did we decide about the dunk tank? Now, Chris is saying no. No. We're, what? Maybe we can bring it back in some other form. I don't know. I did it two years in a row. Isn't that enough? Um, okay. I think I uh, got that. What about the way you are taught uh, legalism? How to stop thinking that way when the answer has been, uh, has been that that's the way we were taught? Um, so I'm going to need to kind of fill in some blanks here with this question. Um, how, I think this question is asking, how do you listen to people and encourage them to bring their problems when the answers you have been taught are all rule-based? Just obey, and that's the answer. How do you, how do you break out of that? Um, by the way, I think on, on this question, um, there is a feeling that we have 
that if we aren't correcting somebody's mistakes, that we are agreeing with them and complicit with those mistakes. And a legalistic mentality like this, is all, it's all about checking the boxes. And if you didn't check that box, it's my job to point out you didn't check the box. Because if I don't tell you, you didn't check this box, then your blood is on my hands, right? It's, we're back to Ezekiel, the watchman on the, on the wall, and I failed to warn you that this danger was out there. This is a mentality. And a big part of what I'm saying is this is not your job. Checking the boxes, not your job. The Holy Spirit is able to walk people through the boxes. He is able to help people come to the conclusion, I have not checked that box. I have not been doing this thing. I knew to do it, but I didn't do it. So, um, we are not compromising or becoming complicit in other people's sins by listening to them without judgment. That is not a compromise. That is a gift of grace. God listens to you all the time. And He does not point out all the boxes you didn't check. At least that's the way He is with me. Maybe He's tougher on you. I don't know. But um, with me, He listens to all kinds of things that are just flat out wrong. So if He is not compromising with my sins by listening to me, in my prayers, then we are not compromising with the people around us by listening to them. So, if, if I'm understanding this question, um, the, 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 the mentality that we need to change is that um, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The correction of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The rules of man do not produce the righteousness of God. I'm kind of riffing off James there, but I don't think he would mind. Uh, because the scriptures are telling us the righteousness of God comes from the implanted word. And that implanted word comes in us and if our ears are open and we, we receive that implanted word, then it bears fruit because of the planter, God himself, who gave that word to us. And here again, this is James chapter 1. Um, so let me give, uh, take this one step further. Um, a legalistic approach, a rules-based approach to listening to people as they describe their problems um, is always going to reply, well, that's the way we were taught. This is, this is what you're supposed to do. These are the answers that we have. So you just need to do these things. Suck it up. You know, get over it, essentially. And um, what I am finding is that there is a deeply ingrained human need to know why. Children express this constantly. Why? 
there's a certain age where they start asking why and they do not stop. And you can tell them, um, well, that's, that's just what we were taught. That's it's just the way it is because I said so. All of those kinds of things. Those are non-answers because they don't actually unveil why. Let, let's think about it this way. If Jesus comes into this world perfect in every way, fulfilling the law, and he comes up to a man who is lame at the pool of Bethesda, and he says to the man, do you want to be healed? And the man doesn't answer his question, gives him all the reasons why he is not healed, why the superstition hasn't worked, and all of these things. And Jesus heals him anyway, even though his answers are totally wrong. If Jesus can work that way with us, are we going to do wrong by being agents of healing for those around us? I don't think we will. So um, the, there, there's this, this willingness on God's part, on Jesus' part, to explain himself, even to, to wrestle with us. Remember that famous scene in Genesis where Jacob wrestles with the man of God, literally Jesus? Or you might take that wrestling match to the Gospel of John or any of the Gospels and realize Jesus is wrestling with these Pharisees, arguing with them so that they understand why they are sinners and need a Savior. God made us with a need to know why. So the, the great failing of rule-based or legalistic approaches with people, the reason why they don't give healing is because they never answer why. The only answer is because, and that's not an answer. So um, these are very good questions, um, excellent discussion. Let us pray together and commit these things to the Lord. Lord Jesus, once again, it is urgent that our region see a different way of understanding the gospel, that they see a different kind of relationship with us, your people. We ask that you would give us wisdom. We pray that you, specifically this morning, that you would give us wisdom in forming partnership with people who need healing. And we know that as we stand shoulder to shoulder with those people, even though they do not have your spirit or may not be saved, even though that is the case, at a human level, giving the gift of listening, care, and, and these kinds of gentle answers and, and gentle responses, we pray that you would give us the desire of our hearts, the passion of our hearts, and that we would see people saved and shift from death to life. That is what we need. That is what we desire. It is in your hands. And so we call upon your name together, and God's people said, Amen.